Welcome to The Final Word, a Bible teaching ministry with pastor, teacher, and author Jim Andrews. The Final Word is grounded on the invincible conviction that what the Bible teaches, God teaches. And that is the last word. On this program, truth still matters. The Bible is in, Babel is out. The Final Word is funded by listeners like you. Should you want to partner with us or want other information about the program, please go to our website at thefinalwordradio.com. There you'll find archives so you can listen to any program you may have missed. Visit us on our social media platforms at The Final Word Radio and write us a note. We love hearing from our listeners. We'll provide other contact information at the end of the program, so have your pen ready. And now Jim Andrews continues his current study of God's Word. Good day, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for joining us again on The Final Word. Before I launch today's exposition, I want to make our listening audience aware of some articles that I have written and tell you how to access them. If you will go to jimandrewsbooks.com, that's one word, jimandrewsbooks.com, you will find there information describing the books I have authored, one of them co-authored with my daughter. On top of that, on the same website, you'll see a tab that says Articles. You will discover there some articles that I've produced over the years that you may find interesting and helpful. For example, my take on the demise of the culture wars and where I think we ought to go from here. Another article that appeared several years ago in a journal for biblical manhood and womanhood is entitled Boundaries Without Bonds. Another is a rebuttal of a tract that appeared several years back. The author attempted cleverly, but as I will show unsuccessfully, to persuade us that the Scriptures do not condemn homosexual practice. After all, that has all been a misunderstanding. I'm not a regular blogger, but when sometimes things pop up on my radar that I feel I would like to address in a thoughtful way, I will sometimes produce a longer article like some of these. So I'm just happy to share them with you for whatever benefit they may have. We continue our exposition of the epistle to the Hebrews. We're in chapter 4. Let's review again the argument of chapter 4 as we get underway. It is very important in certain epistles to stay in close touch with the argument. Our author is addressing Hebrew Christians who have become unstable in their faith. There are signs from the internal evidence that they become a little restive in the face of persecution, though they've seen it before. They certainly become lax about sin, and they become sluggish in their attentiveness to the Word of God, and all those are bad signs, bad signs about the status of their faith. So it's no surprise, therefore, that this book is full of warning passages about the peril of apostasy. By that term, I mean a fatal lapse of faith in turning away from Christ, and in their case, retreating back into Judaism. Later in this epistle, the author will express confidence in them, confidence that this will not happen. But like a prophet, which he is, he feels compelled to warn them not to emulate the faithlessness of their forebears. Their forebears, meaning that unbelieving generation that came out of Egypt, whom God rejected in the wilderness. In their unbelief, they again and again disregarded God's word. The base passage for his warning comes from Psalm 95, cited in chapter 3, verses 7 through 11. And at the end of that passage, verse 12 of chapter 3, Take care, brethren, lest there should be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart in falling away from the living God. Lest they fail to appreciate the seriousness of his warning and happen to think 
that the rest that God swore in Psalm 95, that those people should not enter, was simply an opportunity to enter the land of Canaan. The author here in chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, goes to great pains to show that this rest that God swore they should not enter was a more awful verdict declared against their fathers. It was not that they just didn't get to enter the land of Canaan when he said they should not enter into God's rest. But that language referred to entry into the eternal rest, the rest of eternal salvation. It's called a Sabbath rest because God spoke back in Genesis in language that said that on the seventh day, the Sabbath, God rested. When God terminated his creative work and is said to have rested from his works, well, those who believe, he points out, share in that state of rest, ceasing from their own works to accomplish their salvation, just as God is said to have ceased from his creative works. Now, to us, that's a peculiar concept. But what we really have to understand is that it referred to the rest of eternal salvation. That rest was not something Israel entered into back in the time of Joshua. But it was a goal set before Israel, he shows, long after the times of Joshua. So his message is, here in chapter 4, folks, don't duplicate their unbelief in your own day, and yourselves miss out on entering into God's eternal rest. That is exactly what you will do if you do not listen, that is, listen in faith, to the good news that has come to you and Jesus Christ and his servants. Don't make the mistake of not listening as they did to the good news brought to them with Moses. Don't be tempted to return to Judaism. Don't be tempted to rely on your own legal works to gain an accepted standing before God. It won't happen. You will gain that standing by faith in Jesus Christ. And it's in that way that you enter into God's Sabbath rest, resting from your own works as God did from His. Again, an expression that describes the eternal peace and repose that belongs to those who trust not their own works, not their own merit for salvation, but trust in the atoning work of Jesus Christ for their redemption. So, in verse 11, chapter 4, the author says, Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, that eternal rest, lest anyone fall through following the same example of disobedience. So the Old Testament does speak of a rest that was never fulfilled in the entrance into the promised land of Canaan. Long after the conquest and settlement under Joshua, the promise of that rest was still held out there in Psalm 95. That rest is the true rest of God, the eternal antitype, of which the rest in the promised land was only a type. So the writer, in verse 11, hastens to admonish his readers. Don't blow it here. Let us therefore be diligent to enter into that eternal rest that David spoke of in Psalm 95 long after the times of Joshua. That phrase, that verbal command, be diligent. There is a danger, he's telling them, of an aborted mission. He warns them lest anyone fall through following the same example of disobedience as their forefathers did in the wilderness. Those people the prophets constantly excoriate for their fundamental unbelief. 
Formally, yes, they were the people of God, but not functionally. They were not a believing people, and that's not a guess. That is absolutely the indictment of the Lord himself, as we see in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12, Therefore, brethren, lest there be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart in falling away from the living God, just like it was in that people. That was a people in whom God was not pleased. I swore in my wrath they shall not enter into my rest. Verse 18 of chapter 3, To whom did he swear that they should not enter into his rest, but those who were disobedient? Those who were disobedient, in verse 19, he says, they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Unbelief. That was the problem. It wasn't that there were two or three unbelievers. There was a whole adult generation that God slew, laid low in the wilderness because of their unbelief in one judgment after another. They kept rebelling against God. They kept testing God. Well, let us see and we will go. God says, no, you go and you will see. That's the way it always is. So be diligent, he says. Don't go where they went, lest you fall through following the same example of disobedience, unbelief as their forefathers. By the way, folks, here's another example of the way God keeps our faith. His word, like this word to them, is a prod. God's word eventually produces what it prescribes. God's word creates what it commands. God's word sounds as if faith may fail. However, its very warnings wake up a living faith, while it has no effect on a dead faith. So now we ask, be diligent about what and in what ways? Be diligent not to repeat the habit of unbelief that characterized their fathers. My friends, faith is a choice. Like any precious plant, faith must be nourished and cultivated, fertilized, watered, weeded. On the human side, the preservation and maturation of our faith requires some investment in the project. Like what? like making it one's business to know the truth and choosing to believe it, like appropriating God's means of grace to nourish and cultivate our faith, saturation with the Word, regular prayer and fellowship with other believers, placing oneself under accountability to your spiritual leaders, like being diligent against fleshly temptations that war against our souls and undercut our confidence toward God, suffocating it with crushing loads of guilt. That's what he means when he says be diligent. Be diligent to enter into that rest, lest anyone fall through following the same example of disobedience. There's no room for presumption, dear friends. Which brings him to verse 12. For the word of the Lord is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of the soul and the spirit of the joints and the marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. What our author was really saying, but in different words, is what the Apostle Peter meant when in his second epistle he admonished believers to, quote, make their calling and election sure or certain. That is, Peter admonished us that by our faithful actions to prove that we are really the elect of God, to show by our lives that such talk is not an empty boast. Peter was saying, in effect, to us believers, you say that God chose you, that he called you. And that's what the writer to the Hebrews is saying. Be diligent. Don't be churchy presumptuous. Get up every day with something to prove, namely that you are what you say you are. Be diligent lest your actions betray, as it did in that Exodus generation, an evil, disobedient, unbelieving heart. Now, to reinforce his admonition to get with the program, as it were, and to believe God, 
The writer here in verse 12 makes it abundantly clear that the burden of proof in this matter of faith, it's not on God to convince us, but rather we have a responsibility to convince God, if we may put it so. You see, his word, for our information, it's a touchstone of our heart. It's a litmus test of our faith. The word of God is living. It's active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. God's Word, folks, is not as we often conceive it. It's not something inert, just something written on a scroll or a bunch of dead letters woven together in grammatical order in words and sentences on a page of paper. That may be its outward vehicle, all right, but let us never underestimate the true nature of the Word of God. God's Word is the voice of His Spirit. As such, though packaged in a book, God's Word is living. It's not dead. It's active. It's not passive. Always think of dry yeast. Looks so dead. Looks so impotent. But how powerful. It's as spiritually penetrating as a double-edged sword. And God's Word can find all the hideouts in the dark inner recesses of the human psyche. God's Word can expose all the thoughts and intents of our hearts for what they are. So we stand before the Word of God. Let's get with the program and believe God. God's Word is testing us. The point here is that God, folks, is never on the defensive before us. God has nothing to prove to any of us. We have plenty to prove to God. Man is confronted with God's Word. And God's Word strip searches our hearts and it reveals us in our responses to it, shows us up for exactly what we really are. So there are no excuses. When a man of God gets up to teach the Word of God, people may not realize it, but they are. They are being tested by their very responses. As they sit there and as they listen, their very responses reveal who they are and what they're not. So when the Word of God comes to us, he's saying, let us be diligent to greet it as a friend, not as an enemy. To greet it as a blessing, not a burden. Let us not prove ourselves in our response to God's word, disobedient rebels, but faithful servants. And he says in verse 13, let us understand, there is no creature hidden from his, meaning God's, all penetrating and searching sight. In other words, there's nowhere to hide. There's no way to disguise our true heart so God doesn't see it. But let's understand at all times that all things are open. They're laid bare to the all-seeing eyes of him, of his spirit, with whom we have to do. So what's the bottom line here in verse 13? Remember, it all began with be diligent, get with the program. God, my friends, is not on trial in the matter of our faith. It's not up to God to make things any clearer or more compelling to us in order to justify our confidence in his revealed word. Let us understand that it is we who are on trial. His word is, as I've said before, a touchstone or a litmus test of who we are and all that is in us. So let's remember that every time you and I hear the word of God and it searches, convicts, promises, or prescribes. It makes us, God's word that is, reveal ourselves as surely as it is revealing itself to us. So let's make our calling and election sure. God's word is like a mirror. It's a searchlight of the soul. So be diligent to prove that you're not a spiritual child of your disobedient forefathers who perished at last in their unbelief, unbelief revealed 
in their chronic disobedience and rebellion. Don't go there, and let none of us go there, and let us not be presumptuous. And folks, this is one reason why we just really, really, really need to be in the Word of God. I'm on this radio program teaching you five days a week, and that is good, and I'm so grateful for those of you who listen in. Acknowledge the benefit, want to receive it, but listen, you need to be in the Word of God on your own, and I know that many of you are. But we need to be there just for this reason. The Word of God is living, is active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. The Spirit works through the Word to sanctify us, to purify us, to conform us into the moral likeness of Jesus Christ. Prayer is important. The fellowship of God's people is a stimulus. All those things are important. But the most important play in the Christian playbook is to be in the Word of God. Because it's living, it's powerful, it's sharper than any two-edged sword, and it searches us. It finds us where we are. It's a mirror. It produces what it prescribes. It causes what it commands. It's living, you see. It's not dead letters on a page. The mystery of the Word of God is something astounding. And that is why, in the course of my ministry, and I'm not the only one, I'm committed to be a teacher of the Word of God. Because I know what the Word of God can do. I know because of what the Scripture tells us. And I know that the Word of God, Isaiah 55, never returns unto him void. It always accomplishes the purpose that God sends it forth to do. And he sends it forth, for one thing, to search us, strip search us, and to reveal us to ourselves. We need to see that. We need to see who God is, and we need to see what he has done But we need to see who we are, and we need to see our puniness before him. The Word of God does that. I can't appeal to you enough, I can't urge you enough to be a man or woman of the Word. We get so busy in our frenetic lifestyle that the things we don't just have to do, or the things that we're not just dying to do, we don't find time for the rest of those things. And unfortunately, it's not always the Word of God, that we just have to do, and it's not the thing that we're just dying to do. That's kind of sad. We don't make room for it. Men get up in the morning, Christian men, businessmen, they always find time to go to Starbucks, find time to read the Wall Street Journal and other such things, but they don't find much time for the Word of God, and it shows. Well, this struggle in our life of faith is not an unequal battle for us and our weaknesses. This is a passage of encouragement, all in the spirit of afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. God has provided not only for our justification, but the writer tells us that God has provided also for our sanctification. So he says, since we have a great high priest who has passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, people, let's hold fast our confession. You're in danger of letting go. Now, every Jew understood that language, but every Christian ought to. The high priest in the Jewish world was the one who alone entered symbolically into the presence of God in the temple, entered in behalf of the people in order to make an annual ritual atonement for them and to make intercession to God for his people. Well, in Jesus Christ, we have something, someone, I should say, who is vastly superior to that. We believers have not only a great high priest, but we have one infinitely greater than those of the sons of Aaron. Our high priest is one no less than Jesus, the Son of God. 
It doesn't get any better or any higher than that. So let no Hebrew Christian ever imagine that in the priesthood of Aaron, he had an institution at which he should look back with nostalgia as a loss. Get over that. In Jesus, we have a great high priest, an exalted personage for whom there is no earthly peer. Not a son of Aaron, but the unique son of God. So, bottom line, let us hold fast our confession of him. Our faith could not possibly attach to a greater being or one more helpful. Note again, as he tells them to hold fast their faith, faith is a choice. Yes, God will preserve it, my friends, but it will turn out in the end that the faith that God upholds will in every case be a confession that the saint exercises due diligence to hold fast. There's always a mysterious interplay between divine sovereignty and human moral responsibility. We see that in Philippians 2, 11, where we're called to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, with reverence and trembling, while at the same time we're told that human effort will be certain and successful. Why? Because God is working in us to will and to do his good pleasure. The bottom line here is this. God saves us and God keeps his elect. Yet God accomplishes his saving work in such a way as to prompt and to assure that his elect do what is necessary to keep themselves. The author calls our great high priest Jesus here to accentuate Christ's shared humanity alongside his divine sonship. Yet one must not think that a being so transcendent as the Son of God is so far removed from us in heaven or so unlike us that he's unable to identify with our human frailty as he represents us before God the Father in heaven. No, it's just the opposite. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness. On the contrary, we have one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. What a comfort to us believers, surrounded by weakness in this sinful flesh. What a comfort to us beset by temptations, to know that we have in heaven itself a great high priest, one who knows our frame, one who understands that we are dust, one who's sympathetic to our human frailty. It is so comforting to know that in Christ Jesus we have one who has entered into our humanity. He's not entered into our sins, but he's entered into our humanity. He's one who knows the limitations of our humanity experientially, and therefore he's sympathetic toward us. Now that does not mean that he approves our failings. It does not mean that Christ winks at our sins. But it means that it lifts us to know that he understands us intimately. For example, a good parent can understand and be sympathetic with the trials of their young. Because the parents once were young too. One who has been poor might understand the straits and the psychology of the impoverished. Because once they were poor. Or someone who's lost a loved one can better enter into the feelings of another who suffered the same loss. They might not approve or condone the bad choices of those with whom they sympathize. But at least they can understand where they're coming from, enough to deal more patiently and compassionately with them than someone who's never gone through those things. And so it is with our Lord Jesus Christ. The reason Christ is sympathetic because he's been tempted in all things as we are. Yet the author notes, without committing sin, without surrendering to temptation. Our great high priest knows, folks, the territory we live in. In the course of his earthly ministry, he was exposed to every imaginable testing in principle. The Greek verb for temptation also means testing, by the way. God tests the world, the flesh, and the devil tempt. I always say, testing and temptation, it's the same word, they go together. God and the devil 
come through the very same windows. God detests the devil to tempt, to take every testing to make it a temptation. Well, we'll come back to this. God bless you, friends. Have a wonderful day. The final word is a listener-supported ministry. Should you want to partner with us or want other information about this program, please visit our website at thefinalwordradio.com. Our postal address is The Final Word, 4565 Carmen Drive, Lake Oswego, Oregon, 97035. Our email address is info at thefinalwordradio.com. Our phone number is 503-699-9840. If this program has ministered to you, tell a friend about it. We do solicit your prayers for God's hand upon this outreach. Just be sure the work is in their hands.